0: Welcome to the Insight Podcast from HRE Source. follows the broadcast forecast for the next 50 minutes. The imminent arrival of a strong warm guest with accompanying stories leading to the lifting of fog, a bright outlook and opportunity to plan your way ahead with confidence. We are aware of a pod office yellow cheese warning for occasional dad jokes by the host but these will be light and intermittent.
1: In this episode of the Insight Podcast, we meet somebody who knows an awful lot about three letters, E, D, and I. Equity, diversity, and inclusion. Sue Johnson has had quite the career. We're gonna hear about that career. We're gonna hear about the experiences that she's gained along the way, and her forthright, straightforward, and engaging methodology for helping organizations improve their cultures, be more diverse, be more inclusive, and understand that how they get there takes effort, but no harm in having a bit of fun along the way. This is a 100% fluff-free podcast. Enjoy. I am delighted today to be talking to Sue Johnson. Um, Sue knows she and I, uh, she was actually delivering uh, a webinar where I met Sue for the very first time. Um, IND in Action, uh, I believe it was called. And it was such a, 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 a strong experience because it actually helped me to reflect on things that I hadn't thought of before. Um, usually you take a passive role when you go to webinars. That wasn't the case with Sue's. And I think it's something uh, something we should perhaps take greater note of. And uh, we'll be talking about Sue and how to get a hold of her later. And I, I strongly recommend it. Sue, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be
1: here, and on a warm day as well, which uh, which we've both just been talking about. Um, what, one of the things that uh, um we like to do is we like to sort of understand a little bit before we get into the detail on on the subject matter, which you've got huge experience of. Um, understand a bit about more about the person. Um, and, and early life. Am I wrong, and I don't know whether this, the things came up in the webinar, you, you had a farming background? There's, 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 were you born on, on a, in a farm or around a farm?
2: So very much farming in the family. My father was an agricultural lecturer and my uncle owned a dairy farm. So it's where all our holidays and weekends were spent, uh, getting the cows in for milking, happy memories of hop picking and straw baling. Fabulous. Um, really, yeah, great times in South Shropshire, and Harry Herefordshire.
1: A beautiful part of the world as well. Fantastic. Indeed. So uh so did you I mean in terms of your your life then it was a sort of rural background and was it was it did you did you go to school in a small community?
2: So I grew up in uh, Shrewsbury, the county town of Shropshire. Um went to a rural primary school and the state secondary to six one college and then off to Edinburgh uh to university and just very lucky to have uh, a family where we were just encouraged to to do anything, and we were supported. But very much, you know, you're your own, you make your own path. But the yeah. values of, you know, you work hard, you respect other people, and they you take them with you for the rest of your life.
1: Absolutely. Can I just ask you if you've got a, a memory that you you can think of as being your very first? Anything that that comes to mind?
2: you uh, think at my nan and granddad's house, um, on a swing seat. And it was one of those old swing seats, you know, in the 70s where they had um tassels around it. And I remember trying to rocking it and trying to tip it over. So I'd have been, I don't know, three or four, yeah, you know, your legs wouldn't have gone to the end of the swing seat, but with my brother and sister, just you know, those those freedom days of being with your grandparents, if you know, when they, there was dandelion and burdock on tap. Oh, and dandelion every, and burdock. Oh, and everything was deep fried you name it, There's oh, yeah. potato croquettes, fantastic, fantastic.
1: The school experience, how would you describe yourself? Were you a, you're a social child, were you sporty, were you arty, nerdy, swatty? any other sort of spice child?
2: I was a bit of an all-spice, actually. Um,
1: Good answer. I played in
2: all, I, well, I played in all the school teams, but I was never fantastic at ever, anything, but loved playing in particular team sports. I was in the orchestra, I played in the county orchestra. Um and so I, I did a bit of everything really. I w I wasn't in the I wasn't a cool kid. But, you know, I made my way. And I think I really flourished at sixth form where you know I joined the canoe club, was very involved in guiding actually. And then I got a place to go to the Himalayas on an expedition when I was eighteen, so I had to raise about two and a half thousand pounds through race. Wow. Yeah, selling raffle tickets, picking up litter, getting grant letters, and that's where my love of travel and and I think just embracing different cultures came from. I was very lucky to have that at an early age, and have travelled extensively since then.
1: And you you mentioned Edinburgh, and you that's where you you went for your degree. What did you study? Is your degree? Oh, geography. Okay, well that was helpful. Finding yourself around, <laughs> uh, yeah.
2: I'm good at that reading, and I'm great in Trivial Pursuit uh, on on the green questions. It's probably my only strength. Especially ask so- me the, yeah, ask me the capital cities and flags. I'm great at. <laughs> It's funny, isn't it, how you have these
1: things that you know the usual sort of experience of watching something like um university challenge and feeling as, as thick as men's when you're watching it. <laughs> and then suddenly you get a rich vein. I was talking to my wife the other day, thinking, actually, yeah, I think I'm getting better at this, which is always a dangerous thing because the next time you'll answer one question if you're lucky. Um, but if there are some on on flags or or countries or, or landmarks, I, I that's my that's my thing. Get me get me talking about, you know algebraic equations or, or or science and physics and it's 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 no owner but you were you were an spice I quite like that answer you got you and you and you attune yourself to a variety of different uh, skills and expertise and you did geography but then you did a master's in, in uh, reading
2: I did um I was very so my degree um dissertation was actually on deforestation in the rainforest in Central oh, America wow. and this is in in the 90s so at the very start of the environmental yeah thankfully, coming to the forefront. I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? I love this. So I went and looked at land evaluation. And then you look for a job, and you realize at that time, you know, companies didn't have ESG strategies so in the forefront as they do today. So I could have been an eater, an intern, or volunteered somewhere. But, you know, you need to get a job. Yeah. And so um, then then I took a different path into more digital land evaluation. I became a civil servant, actually, for a year in Aberystwyth. But then I realized, wow, it's on these things in the mid-20s and a great time. But I was thinking, I want to get on somewhere. I could see it was very much a dead person's shoes, to be frank. So I'm like, I need to join a graduate program. And so I joined Sainsbury's actually in distribution and logistics and absolutely loved it. How does food get to our shelves? It was fascinating. and wanted to go upstream and that's when I joined Nestle.
1: Wow, so you had you had a, an exposure to to that that industry that that sector, mm. and it sparked off, and and so you you landed yourself in one of the world's biggest.
2: Mm. Yeah. Absolutely, I had a fantastic. I think it was almost 16, 17 years there. I worked in the UK, led supply chains, and I went out to Switzerland. So yeah, and...
1: the role you had at uh, Nestle when you left was it global global chief diversity officer? Was that? Yeah,
2: yeah, I did that for five years.
1: So yep. that, and, I, and just put this into context for our audience. This is an organization. You've got over three hundred thousand, I think, three hundred thirty thousand employees. It yep. covers over a hundred countries, and you are effectively responsible for that for diversity across that piece. So, I mean, I, some of the, the larger organizations, I think, are now obviously identifying that as a, as a key thing. But I think we're necessarily one of the first to, to create that that role, that senior senior role.
2: I think there are other organizations, to be honest, who, who've been working on it longer, particularly in the FMCG space, Unilever, Coca-Cola and Pepsi. However, Nestle on board just started leapfrogging because one thing about a company like that, once they realise it's important, they will put resources and priorities behind it. And so can, like I say, leapfrog. So I was part of that. And for example, you know, mobility is very important to a company like Nestle. Um, you know, working in different countries, has how you grow from within. Yeah. And it's a real problem, for example, getting uh, expats who are women, because women tend to be two years younger than their partner, and so perhaps the salaries and their career progressions are, are not at the same level. And it's very hard to get women to move with partners. And so Nestle invested very heavily by creating the international uh, dual career network. So I founded it and I ran it for five years and it's in over 15 countries and wow. it's helped thousands of uh, thousands of people become more mobile because it's all about helping your partner to, to find a job in their new country. So introducing you to uh, companies, providing a network of people like you because you know, you've suddenly been professional all your life and suddenly you haven't got a job and yeah. you're in a new country, perhaps you don't speak the language. And so what are the unwritten rules of the game? So, you know, NASA a phenomenal co- company, really Growing leaders, but you know, it, it, making it happen as well—not just talking about it, walking the talk.
1: I mean, I must confess, I was looking at your, your background, and and um, I came across that reference. I had not been aware of that organization, but I'm fascinated by it because of how it addresses a very real need. Mm. That people have just not really talked about because there's been an assumption that, well, you know, you go for the you go for the top job, you travel wherever and what does that involve and 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 who's involved i mean i would have thought that hopefully with technology and what we what we experienced through the pandemic now people are seeing a lot more scope for working remotely but nevertheless you've still got to have some sort of connection in the country that you're living in so even even if it's a, you know charitable work or getting involved in something locally in the community that's always worthwhile
2: definitely you look the
1: network. Time. it's all about the network isn't it
2: You look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, money earning isn't number one. It's having a sense of purpose, a sense of place in society. And so I think it's absolutely key because quite often, you know, expatriations fail in the first six months. And Mm -hmm. the number one reason is because my partner's not happy. And so there are over 100 member companies who, you know, send their recruitment experts, provide advice as part of the network. So yeah, idcn.org, it's a non-profit. Have a look.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating um, uh, setup. The, the the move from Nestle, uh into another global powerhouse, PwC. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that that
2: role? Yeah. Well, so I got into diversity, not the normal route. Like I say, I had almost 20 years in supply chain and logistics. And moving into diversity, it took me about six months to make that decision because It was in HR, it was a completely different function. And the first day I did it, I was absolutely blown away by it. It fascinated me and I'm a problem solver. And so it's constantly, you know, what can we do to motivate and engage and really drive change in this area? And after five years, I was like, you know, where's next? Once you've been the global diversity officer, I can't kind of go plus plus. And I didn't want to go back into supply chain. And so I'm like, what I can do is I can help other companies. And my experience of working at IBCN was I I was working with you know all the multinationals who were passionate about this and I'm like well I have stuff to add because my particular interest is around diversity inclusion in the manufacturing and operations area I think that's the most untalked about everyone you know all the research that's done which is fantastic that I quote all the time from McKinsey and Mm HBR I find tends to be around executive level or board level whereas actually when you have people working together in manufacturing environments you know, and, you know, we can look at the evidence for, you know diversity in teams linked to, for example, performance output of factories around quality, safety and cost. There are massive step changes. And so I'm like, well, I can help other companies to do that. And so I went to PwC in Switzerland, you know, and set up a practice there. They were really open to, wow, we see this is important to us internally and also with our clients. Yeah. And so four years there. And um, in the meantime, I'd moved back to the UK for family health reasons and I was commuting every week and in a way COVID really helped because it's in a client facing role if you can't go and see your clients and so we very happily said well let's kind of you know I don't think this is going to work if we can't come to Switzerland everybody completely understands so I became an independent for the COVID and the homeschooling and ironically one of my biggest clients was PwC helping them working with clients um, and then two years ago I joined Hodges Hodges Bernstein Again, to set up the practice, you know, one of the world's largest executive search firms, and the biggest challenge we have with our clients is well, wow, diversity, and so it's really, you know, helping clients to understand what that means and putting in place actions to be demonstrably more inclusion, inclusive. So that's what I'm doing today.
1: Fantastic, and it, and at this point, which I know a lot of people, when they are run a podcast, they they sort of save it up to the end. Um, you're talking about your current role. If people were interested in understanding a little bit more about what you do and how you can help people to change their cultures and, and embrace more inclusivity and diversity in the organisation, how can they contact you?
2: So please look, at, look out for us either on the website under O'Dgers Benson, or you can email me at ind@odgers.com
1: And that's Orges, O-D-G-E-R-S. Correct. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so when we're looking at, at that role, um, and now we're looking at the, the specifics of, of what that's about, because we're talking about equity, and we're looking at diversity and inclusion. I know this might sound a bit basic, because <laughs> just in terms of, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, but I'm very interested to hear um, for you to share with us what that means to you, um, what, what, what that term means to you.
2: That's a great question because it's evolved over time. If I look at how I was brought up, it was treat people as you want to be treated, treat, you know, be fair and kind. And that's about equality. Whereas actually now we're realizing that if you treat people the same, the outcomes are different. And so to me, I want to work in organizations and work with people who want an inclusive culture where it doesn't matter who you are, you can bring your whole self to work. You don't leave anything behind. You're, it feels that you can talk about your partner, uh, you can talk about your background, your upbringing, without fear of someone judging you. And so, you yeah. know, your unique skills, perspective, knowledge and experience are brought to the table. So that to me is the inclusive environment. The diversity is around embracing this difference in as many ways as possible. You know, when I do exercises with, with workshops, I, I ask people well, how we're we different. And you people might say, I don't know height or weight or politics, or political belief, oh. or I don't know financial status. And you can draw it on a on a on a flip chart. And when yes. you listen, you you want to go the top or the bottom. So things that are visible, for example, my height is very visible. I can't particularly hide it. Whereas my social background or my education, you can't see. So that's at the bottom. And there's some things in the middle that I can choose to hide or not. For example, my religious, my religious belief or my hair color. And what you do is, and you draw like this kind of shape. I'm dreadful at pictionary, but you're drawing an iceberg, and you're asking people, well, "What is this?" And eventually, people get it. When I draw ships and fish and all that kind of stuff, because you can actually see 15% of someone, you can't see 85% of somebody. And what's so exciting about people is, it's like you ask me about what motivates me, my background. You know, because so often you just you're just running in the moment and looking back and reflecting. What are my values? Where's that come from? Why is that important? How am I sharing that in my day-to-day job? And so it's that 85% that I find really interesting about people, the difference. So spending the time to talk about, you know, learn about your colleagues and the people you live and work with. So that's the diversity, but the equity is the bit that I struggled with at first because it's recognising that if you treat everyone the same, the outcomes are different. So again, it, it goes against what I was brought up with. I think what's important for that is that People are like, oh, I can't change. Because the reality is, you know, our brains and our forming and, you know, all the cortex is kind of in our early 20s kind of closed. But you can always adapt if you are open and curious. And so I'm always learning on this topic. Every day there's new legislation, there's new articles, particularly around, for example, the LGBTQ plus community. As, you know, neurodiversity is far more understood and there's better and faster um, identification in the school network. So it's just being curious and recognizing that you know, listen, wanting to learn, and just it's it's a journey. We're always on it.
1: I I actually used that very word in a post yesterday on, on something on a separate subject, but it's still very important um, as as the role and the work that I do. I've I've always tried to remain curious mm. and be honest with it because if you and ask why and and ask simple questions because oh. we we lose that childlike curiosity and that desire to know how things work. Because I think we get to a stage where for are old enough and we've lost enough hair in my case, then people think, well, you should know. But actually, no, I don't. I learned so much from my children. It's, you know, and the generational dynamics, I think is, is an example of how diversity can be very positive if you just learn to understand you don't know it all. And there is something to be to be learned. From talking to people, one of the things I was going to ask, because of your global experience, um, and this might be a little bit bit of a naughty question, but given your global experience, are there all, are there countries or, or organizations that you, or maybe, just thinking now globally, say countries that are doing things that are word, worthy of a gold star in this field, and are there those that should really just be trying a lot harder? Are there, are there any obvious examples of that? I mean, we see all we see we understand what's happening in Afghanistan. We understand that there are there are definite political, geopolitical issues for, for certain countries.
2: Yeah. I'm just literally going through the catalogue of different action plans I've seen from different countries around the world.
1: I apologise, it's a naughty question, really, but I, no, I'm, it is, I, I, it's I
2: fascinating.
1: I'd quite like to know because because I think we make it again, we're making assumptions about how other cultures are and how they how they treat this challenging area. So when I
2: do it, global action plans. I always talk about have a global approach. I like this, you know, people yeah. can remember and do three things. So I have to try and have this two plus one strategy. So what are we going to do absolutely everywhere, which is transversal? But what one thing are you going to do to reflect the local flavor and culture? Because what I do know is every single country is different and has, I think, strengths and opportunities to improve. So for examples could be, you know, in Brazil there's quite a lot of community of people who have a hearing impairment. And so I've seen it. So there's an awful lot around education and teaching people um, basic sign language. So, you know, they do thousands of hours because there's something I understand genetically in some parts of the population. So I think that's fantastic. Then you look at what's happening perhaps in Oceania around um, the different indigenous communities and what's happening there. You look at what's happening in Africa around um access to education, particularly for girls at primary school level and increasing literacy. So I find it really hard to answer your question because I've seen diversity challenges that are different in every country of the world. There's good and bad,
1: I would imagine, in in every country. Ah.
2: So if you look, for example, if you're really focusing on gender and perhaps you're looking at more women representation in your workforce, I might look to Eastern Europe. It's a very um, maternal... Uh, workforce where actually it's hard sometimes to get men in more senior positions but if you look at countries where perhaps have a more uh, if I may say a communist background it's a very much an egalitarian you know you, you look at the expression in China women hold up half the sky and so there's huge balance in the workforce but then you look at for example if you're trying to get more diversity from an ethnicity perspective some countries uh, let's say in Singapore have huge amounts of variety of nationalities but then there's this almost this hierarchy. So I find that hard to answer your question. In my experience, you've got to look for what is the best happening in each country and pull that out, but have it with this transversal kind of what is the mindset and philosophy we're having everywhere, but pull out the best. Because I think every country has unique challenges based so much on their heritage, their history, and if I may say, I think is exacerbated by the media yes. and other conversations in that country as we speak.
1: Yeah, reinforcing the negative stereotypes.
2: Mm. Do
1: you see a of
2: I think Gina, I don't know if you've heard about the Gina Davis Media Institute, that's done some fantastic research around um, media coverage. Right. And, you know, they looked at the Disney films, for example, and they, they looked at the top 1,000 blockbusters in the last decade, and they looked at who's in crowd scenes. And you might think, what in earth is he talking about? But if you think about who's in a crowd scene, in films, they tend to film them in daylight, because obviously it's easy and you can see people. It's where you know, they have this red tape of cordon, police don't cross. Yeah. And they looked at who's in it. And 87% of crowd scenes are men. I don't know about you, but if you're going around somewhere in the middle of the afternoon, I would say that that doesn't represent the society that you're seeing. No. And so what happens is this constant media messaging, for example, who speaks in Disney films. And that hats off to Disney in the last few years you think of the roles that have been played. Because I think they worked out, you know, female characters talk less. They obviously wear less. And they really looked at that and are now having a far more, um, I'd say, structured approach to... Because they have a big influence. I mean, how many millions of kids grew up watching Disney and today these blockbusters? Yeah. So it's recognising that quite often people talk about inclusion and diversity in our workforce, but we all have a responsibility to think about, well, what are the products and services we're providing? You know? Is it accessible to everybody? Am I thinking about all different groups of society? Because you know, to me, I think this is a marketer's dream. Because who are your subsections? You know, you're not just it's not it's not just one consumer segment anymore. It's you know, who are you not talking to? Who are you not understanding their needs? Because it's innovation that's what keeps companies alive and in growth.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we one other point that I, I just want to raise at this 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 juncture of the podcast is that we've got a an interesting title to this podcast. I do like a striking when you talk about marketing <laughs> popped into my head um that it's 100 fluff-free and that's a complete steal from your LinkedIn profile where you talk about being sort of you know lacking any fluff when it comes to this. I'd love to hear your 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 take on that, and I I 100% concur with with that in terms of your delivery and having experienced your your webinar. Um, but how, in terms of in terms of that as a as a premise, where does it come from, and why is it so important not to have when you're talking fluff? Um, I'm taking you're talking about their flowery language vagueness unnecessary extra extra explanations or mansplaining or whatever it might be about a topic which really doesn't need to have that extra fluff. Is that right?
2: Completely. You know, I spent my life working in business and in supply chain, you promise what you're going to deliver and you deliver what you promise. Someone's not happy. And so it's recognising that historically this is sat in a very HR topic. And that's why it took me a long time to decide to move into this area because. It's, I think it's so associated with perhaps it's only a people okay. issue. It's not my problem. Whereas I see this only from a business angle. The reality is diversity and inclusion is great for business. You know, yeah. I can show you evidence around if you're in manufacturing, you have absenteeism reduction. You will have productivity increases. You'll have your LTIFR. Your safety rate will improve. The wastage that you have will reduce. Because if you engage people if you oh. empower them to be the best that they can be they will always amaze you yeah. and this is where the inclusive leadership comes in terms of you know so much research around homogeneous versus diverse teams The reality: out if we're all the same it's a lovely place to work you know it's the mini knees, aren't we all great but you don't yeah. get that conflict that constructive challenge that actually leads you to higher performance and but the reality is it's hard work if you work in very diverse teams. If you look back in your career in terms of people who are very different from you, in terms of perhaps tenure, experience, background, etc., because you'll get this: I don't get where you're coming from. And you're there going, I spent bloody hours on this presentation. Of course it's obvious, but some people don't get you. But I can guarantee, if you want to go from good to great, you need to expand your go-to sphere because all your mates will tell you how great it is. And maybe look at stage three. You can change that someone who perhaps is very different to you, perhaps doesn't even like you, will pull it apart, rip it apart. Yeah. I think successful leaders recognize they need this dissenting voice. They need to ask the empty chair, what am I missing here? Yeah. And so to yeah. me, it's fluff-free because it's completely rooted in business improvement. And the best companies who I've seen work on this recognize it's a business challenge and they resource it and they treat it as such. For example, we don't look at annual KPIs. When you look at sales, you look at them on a daily Mm -hmm. weekly monthly basis and so you treat it as a business uh, challenge and opportunity
1: and here I think I would like to sort of move into sort of the unconscious call it unconscious drunk or sober bias whatever whatever term we want want to align with this because um I, I want to make this reference because it really annoys me and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it I am getting very sick and tired of people the pejorative approach to the word woke and the way in which, if and using the fluff reference again, people dismiss any new initiative, any new directive, any attempt to try and drive the culture, the positive culture of an organisation as simply being woke and therefore it's not really important.
2: So if you want to drive any change in an organisation, it's got to be top down. Quite often people think this is, ah, but let's let's give it to an employee resource group or let's give it to so-and-so who's passionate about this. You cannot have this bottom up. It starts top down and then you unleash the masses of your organization, but it's top down. Mm -hmm. And when I say top down, people have to see this to believe it. You cannot be Talking about it, saying I want everyone to do this, and then turn around and say it's the secretary who maybe is a lady. Oh, can you go and get us the tea or the coffee or clear? It doesn't work that way. It's, con- it's consistent and it's authentic. And I've sat in front of in conferences, and I know when someone's talking about this, it's personal to them. They've got a connection and they're passionate about it. Rather than they're reading it from the script. Yeah. And this is why it's a head, heart, and hands. To me, you start with the the head. What is the business case? What is the reason why it's important to you and your organization? Then there's a little bit about the heart. I always talk about storytelling
0: because stories
2: tell and facts. So stories sell, yet facts tell. So it's a combination of both. And then it's the hands. What are the three things you're wanting everyone to do? I always go in threes. It's all I can remember. And so it's what am I going to do? I, as a leader, I'm going to do this, this, and this. What are we going to do as an organization? And what do I want you to do? So it's giving real clarity and brevity about this is where we are now. This is why it's important. We need to change. I'm going to change, and I need you to change. And this is the direction we're going to go in.
1: Absolutely. And the, and I don't know what the reference to the word woke. I don't know what your your view on that is. Um, it, it's a word that I think originated with references to racial discrimination um, and and sexual discrimination. But it seems to have been adopted by certain political movements and individuals who who are wanting, who think they've done enough. You know, mm. we've done what we can. Let's not. This is all going too far now. Um, mm. do you, and you grow into. Do I need to just calm down, <laughs> or is it something that that you think we we need to evolve beyond?
2: I think we need to evolve beyond it. I was talking to someone yesterday who was went to a conference and was talking about, you know, the pronoun usage when they arrived and everybody was doing it. And it was just like, oh, why am I here? And, you know, it's very easy to start from that, but then it's recognizing that, you know, how are we gonna make it acceptable for people who um, want to identify in different ways unless we mainstream it. And so to me, it's this journey of we're going through change and it's a real, it's a, change, it's a period of painfulness, yeah. you know, this change, and then we, you, know, you go up and down, and that, to me, it's like, always going back to why we are doing this, I think it's so easy, we just kind of assume everyone knows or remembers, and it's giving people a purpose, why it's important, I think everyone understands ESG, you know, why we're reducing printing in the office, why we're doing this, but people in this topic, it's just, roll their eyes. And I'm like, no, it's not time to roll our time. It's, it's time to remember why is this important? Because every single person in this business has to be performing at their best yeah. for us to kind of be successful and beat the competition. And that's why I think leaders need to be taking ownership and talking about this. And it's not a once a year. It's very much the that you need to mainstream in terms of how you design your products and services, how you deliver your products and services and recognise it in the culture. Different people will talk about it in different ways. And it's like putting the elephant on the table. You know, how does that make you feel if we talk about that? Some teams love having charts about smiley faces and where are you today, etc. Some teams hate it. And that's why to me, it's all about having these conversations about what's going to work for us. Because every team will be different and we're all going to have that journey in different ways. But it's making sure we're all going in the same direction, but in a way that everyone feels comfortable with. But you're going to have to expand your comfort zone. And so I don't know if I've answered your question, but there's a time for being woke, you know, and I think it's allowing people to have that, but framing it and moving forward with it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Defining it. One of the um other areas that that I think we've seen examples of difficulties for organizations is recruitment. Um and I think exasperated by the pandemic and we had this this term, the great resignation and people flying around trying to find resources and losing resources. And it's all a bit of a bun fight. Um, but on that subject of recruitment, I think we, we've, we've got difficulties still in relation to form of bias. Um So there's a question on that. What steps can we put in place to ensure that levels of bias can be eliminated from a hiring process or at least mitigated to a point where it's it's manageable and fair.
2: So I'm glad you said the word mitigated. We as human beings cannot eliminate bias. It's actually part of who we are. It forms our personalities. It keeps us safe. And so also it's separating there's systemic and there's behavioral bias. And so organizations have to me a responsibility to look at every single step of their recruitment process from how they write job adverts to where they advertise for jobs, the processes they make to shortlist, then the interview, et cetera. So look at the policies and processes. So we've got something called the inclusive recruitment diagnostic that looks at these six steps. And we've had over a hundred clients fill it in. And what's interesting is the clients who have an inclusive recruitment policy. So this is very much, it's written down. This is what I want you to do. And this is the process I want you to follow. They have 15% higher maturity scores through every kind of process and practice. So the reality is if you have a plan and a strategy, you will be more inclusive. Yeah. So the second thing that was really interesting for me is the training. If you have a plan and a strategy, you are five times more likely to train your hiring managers on the processes and procedures. And this is where the behavioral bias comes in. Because, again, we cannot help it. In fact, there's over a 100 biases. And my favorite one is the affinity bias or the mini-me. is you, we can't help it, but look in the mirror and when you see someone who's like you from any aspect, you know, I've seen people talk about connecting on cricket clubs that they've played in or children's ages, and it's incredible. The minute you walk in, you almost made a decision. and it's, You've got to fight that. You've got to absolutely say, I'm going to be open-minded. I'm going to be curious. It's things like if we'd like somebody, we ask them fewer questions. Yeah. So how can you assess their competency if you ask them fewer questions? Yeah. It's things like, you yeah, when you finish the interview, there's something called anchoring bias. And so somebody walks out and the boss says, oh, what do you think of their answer to question two? Everyone else goes, oh, yes, they weren't very good at this, this and this. So have a minute silence. And at first you'll be feeling really like, I feel really stupid. But then it becomes normal. And so you've got to go through this almost change period of introducing new techniques, very simple, but can have a massive impact on how you mitigate bias. Because if you look at recruitment, it's, to me, it's, it's the start of the employee life cycle. It's the fastest way to change the demographics of your workforce. And it's hugely expensive. And so it's really important that you know, you're know you casting your net as wide as possible. And people are being really open. Because you know, I love talking to organizations about, oh, I need an engineer from this university with this experience. And it's our job to say, well, I hang on a minute. What exact competencies are you looking for? I was talking to one organization recently about um, running... Um, and a metal molding plant and i'm like well, what have you thought about someone who works in the health service who's run a hospital because trust me they understand to detail yeah. safety is key and ah. if you see them going oh, i've never thought of that yeah. and so it's just be really open-minded to what you think because we, we had this um imprinting it's fascinating so gender imprinting let's just play a little game so, David, I'm going to throw some jobs at you, and I want to tell you what first comes to mind when it comes to the gender. So if I say ballet dancer, what do you think?
1: I'm married to one. So, yes, female.
2: Wow, <laughs> I'd love start. to hear more about that. Good start. <laughs> How about a primary school teacher?
1: Uh, female.
2: Uh, engineer. Male. Leader. Female. Good for pilot. Male. And also I can see I'm watching you, you're actually thinking about this quite hard in your head. So what it is, it's called gender imprinting. You can probably once, you can
1: probably listen carefully, you can probably hear the little clogs going around as well. Well
2: I could, I could hear I hear all the way from them from Birmingham. But it's say so we're human. And don't forget, this is these stereotypes of what we see again and again. For example, I love the Virgin Advert. If you look at who they've got in their in their yeah. advert, it's completely busting stereotypes. And it's recognizing that you have starting off with, okay, what's in our mind? Yeah. It's even things like before you do an interview, having a five-minute, like, let's refresh ourselves. What are the most common you know, pitfalls in recruitment? And it is, you know, when someone walks in, perhaps they don't look you in the eye. You dismiss them because to you, you were brought up that eye contact's really important. Yeah. If someone shakes your hand and it's a bit limp, I was brought up have a very strong handshake. That shows, you know, I don't know, strength, courage. Whereas everyone's different. You know, and some cultures don't like looking you in the eye. Perhaps if you're neurodivergent, Again, that's more uncomfortable for you. And so it's things like, okay, how can we offer our recruitment process to be accessible as possible? Do you have to actually do a presentation in the meeting? Or could you record it and send it in advance? For some groups of people, perhaps you're introverted. That'd be much better. And so to me, it's thinking, how can we cast our net as wide as possible, but then make sure they can access at every stage? Because quite often you can start off with a huge pool, but then if someone's shortlisting on their own, on a friday afternoon and they're tired and they've got five minutes because their evidence suggests we spend about 10 seconds looking at see cv it's complete bias that's why i'm saying it's a combination of looking at the processes to really mitigate systemic bias and also education and understanding yeah. to mitigate behavioral bias but if i was going to give you one tip for everything it would be never do anything on your own
1: Quite right. yes because there lies all of the problems, doesn't it? You're not getting any checks and balances, you're not having any sensible conversations and having to, and not having a mini me, I guess, as your as your check and balance <laughs> would be a good idea. <laughs> but I yeah, I mean your your questions, I think you did something very similar in your webinar. So I will confess I was in part prepared for that, that those line of questions and and the answers you will get. Um but you can't if you're being truth really truthful there is that underlying expectation we've seen we see adverts we see television pros we see films all these stereotypical views of of what you should expect out of roles is there um in terms of recruitment one of the things that that I've I've come across and it, it as I will I will preface this by saying it's a bit of an irritant iris- iris- for me the use of um equality uh, and inclusion forms or diversity forms in the recruitment process so that at the stage of hiring you know you have not even met somebody you know it's it's an online thing you you maybe have expressed an interest in a role and the next thing you know you're presented with a five-page form that's asking for your inside leg measurement gender pronouns um you know your favorite football team but they want to know all sorts of things and i've got to of a problem with that and i don't know whether i've got a problem with me because that or whether that's right because is that a legal requirement
2: well the first thing is it has to be gdpr compliant so you should know that that data should be stored anonymously because you can't store personal data and so that's the first thing but i I understand your point but being part of a, a you know executive search firm it's hugely important to us data because you know, we're committed to this internally and we're working with our clients with it. And how can we progress unless we've got data? But before that, there needs to be a, this is why we are asking you for it. And I think you say it's easy to have an attachment click. That to me is wrong. It needs to be, here's the bigger picture. We're going to ask you this. This is why we're asking it. This is what we're going to do with it. And this is how you can choose to answer or not. I think everyone can get a bit better at that. But to me, it's giving people the why, the sense of purpose. Because yeah. if you think, okay, if I do this, then I'm going to make a difference to this, then fair enough. But if it's just a, out of nowhere, I, I agree. But I talk to organisations about, you know, again, it starts at the top. You need the leaders, to be talking about, we're going to be doing this. And this is the reason why. And here are my, you know, characteristics. Because suddenly you've got to build trust. You've got to build psychological trust.
1: safety. It's the key thing for me, trust. And just to be given that before you've even got a relationship, it's it's a bit it's a bit like going going on a first date and somebody handing you a questionnaire and, oh, <laughs> Do you want children? How many? Children? <laughs> Hang on, we don't hardly know each other yet. So yeah, it's it's a bit like that for me. But I appreciate the research is really important. Thinking now about the future workplace, this is, a, this is again, another big question. <laughs> I'm sorry, about the big question I'm asking. Um, do you have any thoughts on on what that might look like, that that landscape, let's say project forward five years? What what progress do you think we need to have made?
2: I think the progress needs to be in a number of areas. I think the reality is I spent 80 to 90% of my time still to, we're helping clients with gender. And that's something that needs to continue, basically because you can measure it. Every company measures that, in terms of then you can see where you're going. Mm-hmm. I think I'm waiting for the government to really release the um, ethnicity pay gap methodology. I think we can all argue that the ups and downs of the gender pay gap methodology, but is this brought the topic on the table? It's driven accountability and transparency, because the reality is, you know, People are interviewing us as organizations now and information is one of their, how they make decisions. You know, what is your strategy on this? What is your commitment on this? I'm going to look at the photographs of your board because when you join an organization, you look, where do I want to be in five years time? Is there someone who looks like me? And so it's kind of gone from being, I'd say, an optical topic and we're just talking about it. To if I don't see evidence, I'm going to go somewhere else and yeah. you're going to miss out on talent. So I think the change needs to be uh, far more transparency um, externally and what people are doing and accountability. So I really hope ethnicity pay gap reporting comes in. I'd love to see different ability disability pay gap reporting coming in because then it also has a level playing field and here's stake in the ground. And so action is required. I think um, we have no idea what's going to happen around working from home, the medium and long-term implications on that. You know, I saw a big article at the weekend about a lot of um, professional service and banking firms mandating you know back in the office three days a week. If I look back to my early years at Nestle, you know, seventy percent of what you learn comes from watching other people
0: that yes. one-to-one
2: experience. And if you're sitting yes. at home, how are we going to get the next generation upskilled quickly? Yeah, you know, jobs in ten years' time, there'll be drone pilots. There'll be jobs that I can't even imagine. And so. How are we going to equip people? I think it's the emotional intelligence because you know it's interesting in teams, we've lost the ability, You know, it's, it's very hard to read people's. It's those key indicators in a meeting if someone's shuffling in a chair or who they're looking at. And it's those key skills because now it's much more about emotional intelligence. It's that balance with you know, IQ. So an answer to your question, what's coming? I think we need to bring the output of Black Lives Matter into reality it still seems to be people are making pledges and i'm not seeing a lot happening yeah so like it or not i do believe there's government policy that will drive change there i'm so pleased that i'm seeing a, a growth in disability different ability neurodivergence coming in as, as we're getting more understanding on the topic and as far more on our access to reason adjustments but we've got so much more to do we need everyone to be disability confident and it's, yeah, it's bringing people into the office in a way that is productive for everybody and still allows that flexibility. But I worry about the next generation in terms of their social skills and their emotional skills. Yes. Because most of them would rather spend their time at the weekend texting and, sorry, they don't text, sorry, silly me, messaging their friends rather than seeing them in person. And I think the long-term consequence of that for us as employers and society, it, it worries me.
1: Yes, and the talk of the virtual reality world um, is, is not helpful in that regard either because you can see people burying themselves even further into a sort of virtual meat type scenario and concentrating on their avatar rather than their, their personal um, development and growth, which, uh, yeah, I, c- I completely concur. I think we need to get our head around artificial intelligence and all the technology to ensure that the humans aren't left behind. Uh, in that experience um i've got a couple of questions that came in well actually i had, had a few I've, I've got a couple that i'm going to put to you now um on our q a and that was from one was from holly she's a um, hr manager in london and yeah. she asks uh, many organizations use apprenticeships as a tool to bring in new talent and diversify the workforce what are the main challenges associated with this and solutions that can be put in place
2: Hey, thanks, Solly. So a really interesting question. So my reflection on that is, I think, is so social mobility is another dimension of diversity I think has come into the forefront in the last few years. And organisations are seeing apprenticeships as a, as a way to get people who perhaps haven't gone to university or want a more vocational pathway or just accessing new talent pools, which is fantastic. And so I would be, you know, how can we continue and accelerate that? What worries me is, quite often they come into an organization and unless there's a structured pathway, they kind of sit. Yeah. So it's how are you going to suck this pool up for your organization? And also not having this revolving door where they come in for I don't know, one or two years and then go somewhere else or lose interest. And so what mentoring processes are there, the buddying process? And so then they can see, well, here's the future of progression. So I'm a big fan of apprenticeships, but making sure that there's structure around it um, there's this constant check in and because it's, it's the inclusion sign, keeping people, but then growing them in the organization. You know, For example, retail and hospitality is the best social mobility structure because you can come in, you know, washing pots and then 15 years' time you can be the CEO. Yeah, yeah. So, how are you going to make that happen in your organization? You know, yes, it's great bringing apprenticeships in, but what potential structural barriers? I remember working in Pakistan and Talking about, you know, we're getting people in from different universities and who haven't been to university. But it was things like, okay, who's helping them? Telling them what to dress. Who's yeah. telling them how to walk? Who's telling them how to write a PowerPoint? And it's recognizing that all these skills, all these unwritten rules that we take for for granted. If you're in the in group, if you're in the dominant group in an organization, and it's getting people to realize that we need everyone. You know, everyone's got to be in the same playing field. And so, what do I? Have, what's my role in doing that? not to look to hr for them to fix it And
1: there's a whole language as well that organizations build up around the the you know the, the, within their culture and and for an apprentice where i think you can lose somebody very very quickly is where they just don't don't understand the language they they don't understand i don't just necessarily mean that the sort of the formal language. i mean the internal sort of the jargon speak the and if you're in a technical field that can seem bamboozling from a very early point
2: Oh completely, we live in a world of TLAs, three letter acronyms. But it's also an apprenticeship. I've seen them a lot, for example, in manufacturing organizations where, you know, you'll send and the new person to go to the stores to have a long to get a long wait. Yeah. I've seen it done. And this poor sixteen year old will sit there and they're all laughing away. And it's stuff like that, recognising actually in today's society, is that really what we need? How is that helping? Because that kid will go home feeling pretty upset maybe they'll have a laugh and banter with it. But it's the other one you mentioned, is, is you have mentioned work, the other one's banter. Yes. Just, I so believe we spend more time in the workplace than we do with our loved ones at home. It's oh. so important that the workplace is fun and we come to work wanting to enjoy it and be engaged. And that, when I worked in Switzerland, I remember people say, ah, oh, Sue, hey, explain this word to me, banter. And it, I remember thinking long and hard about it and I came to the conclusion that banter is where we're cruel to people we like. And it's actually just thinking, is that really right all the time with everybody? There is always a place for jokes, always a place for fun and work. But it's just recognising, well, who perhaps doesn't isn't that isn't that working for in this group? And that's part of the leadership in terms of saying, you know, oh, that's great. But I think actually maybe we'll keep that, you know, for a home conversation. And that's where we need allies, we need leaders, we need everyone to say actually. This is what works. In this, what doesn't? Being respectful to all, but please let's always have fun and enjoy ourselves in the workforce in the workplace.
1: Absolutely, I was on the receiving end of some some abuse yesterday when uh, my son delightfully shared with me some some a TikTok from this morning, where Giles Brandreth was talking about the um, the new list put together by um, TrustPilot of people who are most likely to complain. And apparently the, um I, I'm now sharing this on my podcast, which I, I don't know why I'm doing this, but it's just relevant. The one starers and the people who like likely to complain most are Davids. And of course he found felt hilarious because I've got a bit of a track record. So he, but, but in terms of, I call it finding justice in the world. Um, And I have my campaigns and I go swiping at windmills, but, but yes. So I, I and then the means that followed that. So banter Nowadays, not just the sort of having a bit of fun with somebody in person; it's the it's the digital, <laughs> because the means and the and the gifts that follow that were quite interesting from the whole family because it was the family WhatsApp group. But yeah, I, I was able to take it all. It's it's fine, all in good part. But in the workplace, with somebody who isn't so familiar with those people, and if that sort of thing is happening, it, it, they might not quite be so taken with it or be able to cope with it. So it's.
2: But that's why you've got to have these conversations and talk about it. Yeah. You know, and it's not about finger point because the past is, it's all about, okay, what we're going to do now and change in the future. But also to me, there has to be consequences because quite often it's that, like, oh, never mind. So and so they're going to retire in a couple of years. Oh, they're, they're our best salesperson. Sorry. If they are causing offense to somebody else, you know, there's a, here's the policy. Here's what we stand for. Here are our values. We've talked about this. Yeah. There has to be consequences, and that's where people recognise that you mean this, yeah. because actually, wow, you've done something, and perhaps, yeah, they were moved on. Or and if, and if,
1: if one person is put out by it, there's a chance that there's probably multiple others who just haven't spoken up yet. That's Oh,
2: completely. Experience. Completely.
1: Um, Kira in Birmingham has a question, and uh, thank you, by the way, on behalf of Holly, for, for, for answering the question on the apprenticeships one. It was very very thoughtsome after. Kira in Birmingham asks, can you, have, um, can you give an example of how you make your direct reports feel a sense of inclusion, belonging and equity on a daily basis? What a cracking
2: question. you, Kira, yeah. I'm writing it down. Inclusion, belonging and equity. Oh. So if I look at the traits of an inclusive leader, um, I'm going to start off with uh, meetings. And so, yeah, we spent so much time You know, my experience is a number of things. One is making sure everyone's voice is heard and some techniques you can do on that are, for example, before you make a decision, you ask everybody and you might think, oh, we do that already. But do you religiously, you know, if there's a, if there's a a task to be done, like taking the minutes, rotate it and have literally a list of names. Otherwise you'll find the same people do it all the time. Um, It's things like um, setting the agenda. Quite often, some people get four off the bottom. And so it's making sure the person who fell off the bottom goes to the top the next time. Because sometimes meetings do run, but sometimes we find the same people are really dropped off. Recognising there are different learning styles. So this is why you always send an agenda. Because if you're a reflector or a theorist, you want to know that in advance. But if you're an activist, you wing it in the moment. But that's not fair in everybody. Or if it's a massive decision... Say, okay, you've got 24 hours. So allowing the reflectors to go away and think, oh, actually, I didn't say that, or I still want to know more about that. And so it's having different techniques to make sure everyone feels included. My favorite one is things like um, ideation. You know, I don't know about you, but I love it when you've got a problem and you get given a stack of Post-it notes and it's like, okay, tell me your ideas because I'm slightly extroverted and activist. So there's a technique called quiet storming. And so this is where you get everybody's voice heard. So think this is the problem, make sure everyone understands it. And then give people three minutes where you are not allowed to speak and yep. have an idea on different <laughs> post-it notes. And then you'll find everyone has a voice. And so to feel included every day is to rec- make you feel that you belong here. I value your unique skills, experience, knowledge, and perspective. And it's using these little tips. Yeah, And people think, oh, well, it's not rocket science. And it's not actually, but you need to do this consistently all the time. And it's making sure, for example, if there are any microaggressions, Mm -hmm. and you might think, what's that? It's verbal or nonverbal slights against usually certain groups of people. So perhaps you don't look them in the eye. um, You don't say hello to them in the morning. You look at your watch when they're talking to you. You'll get your phone out when they're doing something on Teams. And it's calling people out, saying, oh, you know, so this is an amplification technique. You know, someone has a great idea and then, no one hears it, and two minutes later someone else says exactly the same thing, and they're like, oh, what a great idea. You say, actually, building on the original idea of so-and-so, so so it's an amplification technique. It could be, if you hear someone that hasn't been nominated for a project they'd be really good at, you bring their name to the table. So it's inclusion is about consciously deciding every day when I come to work that I'm going to get the best out of everybody and enable everyone to be the best they can be.
1: Yeah. I I used actually all great and the idea of the quiet um ideation, but but coming up with the post-it notes and giving everybody an opportunity and a space to be able to think of how they might solve the problem. It's an active thing that I use in my OKR um programs and workshops, trying to get people to understand how they can how they can work on, on the plan, the objective and come up with the key results. But it really is powerful because you understand very well the dynamic in any group. Is you've always got the loudmouth, you've always got the one that's got the ideas that think they've got the ideas, but quite often you find the real thinking and the real sort of practicalities come from other people in the room because they know what it's going to be like, they can think it through, and you've got a, you've got a, a combination of skills in a room that if you work them well together, you actually come up with a, a much more co- cohesive way of of uh, working forward. But um, yeah, I'm going to draw a line with that one too. The the conversation has been fabulous. I've really learned a great deal from that. I've got one final question for you, which is um, given the fabulous career that you are enjoying um, and the experiences you would have had, have you perhaps something that um, you could leave us with as an insight for individuals working in an environment where they're looking at EDI and how they might better um, implement it in their organization. Maybe something to do with mindset or, a, or a, it's an insight that you might be able to share with them.
2: I'm trying to think of what a silver bullet would be, but I've yet to find one. Okay. And so, because there isn't one thing that's going to shift it, it's this combination of factors. And I'm going to go back to the head, the heart, and the hands. Engage the top leadership through the head, give them the why. Here is how our organization is going to basically sell more and be more profitable. Don't assume that they're going to get this. Yeah. So what's the head? Then it's the heart. What is the story for this organization? Where is it going to help us in terms of um, our values, our employees, our our clients, yeah. our customers, our suppliers, our communities? Make it much bigger than the four walls of your organization. Yeah. And then it's the hands. Okay. This is where we're going to go. And this is what we're going to do. This is what I want you to do. And this is how we're going to enable you to do it to unleash the opportunity in our organisation.
1: And, and, I, and I guess what comes before that is undertaking, rather than just launching something that they might have downloaded as a PowerPoint presentation from some organisation and saying, we've well, got to do this, is to contextualise it within their own organisation and do a bit of research to address those points about, you know, the, the facts of what it's going to do to the bottom line of the business so it can actually connect with those at the top to see, it actually, I am I want to, to see the bottom line improve. And if this is going to help us, then, you know, you've got my attention. That might be a way to to draw them in.
2: So I always had two slides I showed at Nestle. The number one was the business case. The reality is 70% of food purchase decisions are made by women. In terms of universities, Uh, over 60% of graduates from Western Europe and North America are women. And diverse organisations outperform homogeneous organisations. So don't assume that everyone knows why because this is your job, you do it every day. Bring it to people, bring it to the business leaders' heart and minds. Okay, I've got it. And then I had one chart around the organisation about um, the diversity at level. And so where is the glass ceiling and where in your organisation? Because that's where you need to target. So Facts tell and stories sell, combine the both.
1: Fabulous. Sue, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a fabulous run-through, of just over an hour now, of, of your thoughts on this subject, which I'm sure is going to be of huge value to our audience. Thank you very
2: much. You're welcome, David. Thank you all for listening.
0: Here's the Podcast Follow Forecast, The follower count is high today and getting higher. To avoid cloudy events in future and unexpected drops in insight, we strongly recommend following this podcast. If you like it, please leave a sunny review.